Hello and welcome to A City of Champions, a seven-part podcast series diving into each individual game of the Cleveland Cavaliers 2016 Finals run. Today we start with Game 1. The Cavs were seeking to prove that when healthy, they could beat anybody. And the Warriors aimed to cap off the best season in NBA history with a title. The crowd ready to roar here at Oracle Arena. For game one of these NBA Finals, the rematch from last year, Warriors and Cavaliers, best of seven to decide an NBA champion. Draymond Green all alone lays it up and in. And Teron Lue wants a timeout. James blows past a lefty layup. We've had six lead changes in the last two and a half minutes. The Warriors have six players in double figures. And Curry and Thompson are not those. Livingston again! Barbosa, the runner, banks it in. 15 straight points by the Warriors, 13 of them from the bench. Lowest scoring game of the season for Thompson and Curry combined, yet they win by 15. Warriors take game one, courtesy of their bench. Welcome to the Chase Down Podcast, part of the Blue Wire Network. I'm your host, Justin Rowan, and today we are launching a City of Champions 2016 Finals Retrospective. This has been a project that we've been working on for some time now. We are insanely excited to finally be dropping this, and it all, all the thanks goes to our wonderful producers and as well as our amazing guests that have all stepped up to the plate for this podcast. Yeah, uh, big big shout out before we really get started diving into every single game of the NBA Finals with clips and highlights and an amazing set of guests. We wanted to thank our guests. So that includes the boys from the Light Years podcast, Bomani fucking Jones, Jason Lloyd, Marcus Thompson, Ethan Strauss, and Larry Nance Jr. from the Cleveland Cavaliers. If you weren't excited for this podcast series before you listen to that, you ought to be after hearing that killer guest list. So thank you guys so much. Thank you so much to Charlie Egley, who has been the editor, who has been working his ass off on this project. And of course, our dear friends at uh, Blue Wire and Blue Wire Studios for all their uh, additional creative support that have really taken this from uh, a fun little project to something that we're really, really proud of. And of course, thank you to the people who always support this pod and Help us find guests, uh, Ben from Real Cavs Fan, our producer, Meredith Kane. So big shout outs to everyone who has helped us with this project. We wanted to start off with that because this has really been quite the labor for us since we've been in quarantine. <laughs> this is something that we're really, really excited to share with you guys. And we just wanted to lead off uh, thanking uh, all of our guests and all the people who have helped make this possible because I think you guys are really going to like this project. You know what I love about this, Carter, is that we're announcing all these exciting guests and what what a great series this is going to be. And then you're starting off with game one, which is A, a Cavs loss. B, it's the two of us. This is kind of more of your traditional feel for the Chase Down podcast, working your way into all the great guests. But my God, th- this has to be a letdown for a lot of people. Yeah, one could argue that this series is dead on arrival, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> my God. Well, no no kidding, because not, not only do they have to deal with us, then game two is the light years, boys. Like, this is this is tough. We're, we're, we're really, we're, we're testing loyalties right off the bat. If you're wondering why we, why we gave you the full list of guests off the beginning, <laughs> so you wouldn't leave us now. Uh, but you know what's really interesting about this series, Justin? And we found this with every single game we rewatched. It's that none of these games suck. No, no, they really don't. Every single one is really, really interesting in its own way. And they're all way more competitive than you think they were. I really think game three is really one of the only ones that isn't really, really tough uh, and hard fought the whole way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so funny. I think this is kind of a good way to segue into game one here because game one, I remember feeling very demoralized. And while I was thinking about how to approach this podcast, I was thinking, huh, why did I feel so demoralized? This game was really competitive. And a uh, 15-0 run uh, <laughs> between the third and fourth quarter yes. kind of blew it out of out of proportion for the Warriors. But Spoiler alert. Two-pointer for Barbosa. Boy, the bench has played so well for Golden State. And Teron Liu takes a timeout 50 seconds into the fourth. The lead is back to 10 for Golden State. Carter, honestly, as I was watching this, I was sitting there wondering if I had the right film. Like Dude, I, yeah. I knew I did because there was no way I couldn't. 
but I was taking notes like I was taking quarter by quarter notes. And in the third, I think I wrote down here six minutes left, six point game. That was going to be a talking point for me where I'm like, you know what? This was kind of sneaky competitive. Like the the Cavs were still in this. They had a one point lead with a minute and a half to go in the third quarter. Like I, I did not remember that in any way, shape or form. And here's where that's what I actually want to talk about. Justin, why did it feel so hopeless when this game was so competitive? And I figured it out. And it's because the Warriors were still inevitable at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And I really think that this is that that's what I want to talk about is like there's so much of this mystique that got washed away by this series. And in this game, it felt like fait accompli that this was going to be an ass kick. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree because you look at this game and Steph Curry and Clay Thompson both play pretty poorly. Like this wasn't yeah, and it's not like they played low usage, they played bad. There was a stretch where they were six of like 20 from the field combined in the fourth quarter yeah flat out like if you want to make your collaborative talent uh jokes uh this is where you would do it because uh, sean livingston and leandro barbosa were phenomenal off the bench barbosa off balance gets it to go five to shoot for livingston pull up jumper livingston again He's two for two. I remember the conversation at the time when it came to these series in in 2015 and 2016 in particular. It was, you have to steal one of those games at Golden State if you want to have a chance at winning the series. That was something that happened in 2015. Obviously, the Cavs very shorthanded and kind of ran out of gas. And this was a game that it really seemed like the Cavs let this one get away and they were their own worst enemies. And when the Warriors opened up a door with Steph and Clay playing so poorly, the Cavs just didn't walk through it. They 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 ran into the door frame. Well, you know what's weird is uh, I agree on the offensive end. I don't actually think the Cavs were that bad on defense in this game. I agree. No, like they lost this game on a steady diet of contested mid-range uh, post-up jumpers mm-hmm. up from Sean Livingston. That's why they lost this game. Yeah, they didn't score enough. I think they had eighty-nine in this game and. Yeah, that they they really hadn't quite figured out how to attack this Warriors defense. But this is kind of what I was talking about when I talked about how inevitable they felt. Steph played bad. Yeah. Clay played bad. Mm-hmm. And the Cavs did everything that you would have wanted them to do uh, from a, what the box score ended up being to win this game. And it wasn't close. Mm-hmm. And it just I just remember at the time thinking, well, now they've got to win three in a row just to hold their home court yeah. if they want to compete in the series. And it just felt so it felt like such a loss. And that that facade of of, you know, they're going to overwhelm you. And if if Steph and Clay don't get you, the role players will. That's why I think we were wondering rewatching this game why we felt so bad at the end of it. And and it's funny with this series, it seems like there was constant rewriting of narratives. Cause I I remember vividly in game five, Mike Breen says in the first close game of the series. And I was sitting there uh, upon rewatching this and thinking, man, like any of these games, even game six, the Warriors had an opportunity to win that game. And by the end of the series, people would say, well, you know, even though the cumulative scores, like the Cavs were tied with the Warriors. It was a four point difference. Uh, I thought it was tied going into game seven. And anyway, it was tied going to game seven. So it ended up as a four point difference. Correct. So, but they were saying, even though it was tied, that game seven was the first close game of the series. And there's so many rewritings of narratives, like even Steph Curry, like throughout this rewatch, you see him outside of these first two games, really playing very well, answering a lot of Cavs buckets. And that all got erased because of how this thing finished. So it's really, really fascinating. And this was a much, much better series than I remembered. And for those that don't know that are new to the podcast, this was my first time rewatching this series because I was absolutely terrified that if I watched it again, the result would change. You know what's so funny about uh, this game in particular, watching this game? The energy is so odd because none of these, neither of these teams actually knew how to kill the other yet. Yeah. It was really, really wild watching this because, you know, I think that diehards like myself and you know, if Justin wasn't a weirdo, uh, the people like like us watch games five, six, and seven mm-hmm. uh, if they rewatch anything from this series. And you kind of forget that one, Bogut had gone down yeah. uh, and Iggy's back is hurt. 
But more than anything, the Cavs had not figured anything out <laughs> about how to, how to attack this team. The offense was so stagnant. Uh, they didn't attack Steph almost at all yeah. in the pick and roll. That was a mid-series adjustment. And the whole seri- the whole game was really these teams like both made whole for the first time in a playoff setting, feeling each other out. And because they played in four consecutive finals, I think our brains think that they understood each other so thoroughly. Uh, you know, we're destined <laughs> to do this forever, you and I. Kind of like understanding of each other's games. Like even once KD got added, the style of play really didn't change that much. Like they knew how to attack each other. Yeah. It was so jarring to go back and watch them not know how to attack each other because it was kind of an ugly first quarter and one with like, it didn't feel as important as those late series no. games did. And it just felt very jarring. At one point, uh, it, heading into the fourth quarter when the Cavs got it back to six, uh, heading into the fourth, Steve Kerr said, uh, we were playing like it's November. Got to remember it's the June game. And I really think that was an energy that was, it was just like a, it wasn't uneasy because it was in uh, it was in Oracle. They were a happy, confident fan base, but it was more just like like a, a sense of them feeling each other it, out. It was awkward. It, it was awkward basketball, and I, I think one of the things that played into that um, was the two times that they had played prior in the regular season. One was one of Kyrie's first games back. I, I believe he had one or two games prior to Christmas Day, and still wasn't really himself by the time they played again. I believe it was on uh, Martin Luther King Day. Cleveland's biggest loss of the season, the biggest home loss for Cleveland, with LeBron James, a member of the team. And then there was a coaching change. They have the best record in the Eastern Conference right now at 30 and 11. But we have just learned that David Blatt has been fired as the head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers. One thing that we've seen consistently throughout the Tyron Lue era was he does make those mid-series adjustments where he finds out what the weak points are. With the Toronto Raptors, eventually it just became clear, we're going at Valanciunas, we're going at DeMar DeRozan. In this series, as it progressed, there was a lot of attention given to Steph Curry. Like, let's We're going to the bigs and we're going at Steph. Right, we're, we're going to switch him. And even if we don't score on him, because Steph battled in a lot of those matchups, it wore him down physically. And especially with him not being 100%, that was a really smart strategy. And the awkward basketball, too, at the beginning, a few things I noticed was they were still playing slow. They were playing 2015 style um, when it came to this game because the conventional wisdom at the time was the Cavs are going to have to ugly up this series. They're going to have to play slow if they're going to win. So even when they had an opportunity to maybe push, uh, Kyrie would kind of pull up and kind of get set in the half court. LeBron would do the same thing, walking it up. And you look, the four quickest games in this series were all Cavs wins. And that was an adjustment that they made. And it's really, really apparent when you look at this first game. Um, the other thing that was very different in this game uh, compared to the rest of the series, Harrison Barnes playing incredibly well. Started off three for three from the field. Nice back door, Barnes, and a foul. And my God, I forgot how good Kevin Love looked. Kevin Love banks it in. God, he looked great. One more note before we move over to love, because I do want to get there. But before we do so, I think it's really important to focus on the coaches for a second, because Mm -hmm. watching this game, I think, and, you know, uh, full disclosure, uh, and we've joked about it in the other pods in the series, but we are recording out of order here. And so we rewatched out of order. And one of the, I think up until now, I've known that Lou won the coaching battle, like in my brain, I just knew. It was very mm-hmm. evident that Lou won the coaching battle over the course of the series by watching game yeah. one because the Warriors don't look all that different from from now in, in this game to game seven. No, no, they really don't. And they stayed the course. And you understand why Warriors fans will harp on that so much and, and why there is some discomfort when it comes to talking about Steve Kerr because you look at the roster that he had here and the roster that he had with Kevin Durant and it's you know what, there is a case to be made that they underachieved. And and I think even with all the injuries the Warriors had, and the Cavs had their share of injuries as well in this series, there was enough uh, on both sides for either team to win this series. It came down to the wire. And I think do believe that some of those adjustments that uh, Steve Kerr failed to make ended up making a difference in this series. And and one of the things that jumps out, because I I don't think we have to go as deep on this as with Kevin Love, but Leandro Barbosa was absolutely phenomenal. To Barbosa for three. 
Barbosa, the runner, banks it in. He was phenomenal in both games one and two, but he and Sean Livingston in particular really picked up the slack when Steph and Clay were, were coming up short in this game. They were instrumental in that 15-0 run that you alluded to earlier. And Barbosa didn't play in either of the games in Cleveland. And you have to imagine that them coming out flat in game three and kind of assuming that that's almost the gentleman's sweep game, that's got to be something that both Kerr and the Warriors kind of regret looking back on this series. Yeah, and I just look, Barbosa did play some in game three, but it, I think mostly in garbage time. Yeah. But yeah, I just think that ultimately Kerr just didn't adjust. He didn't make the changes, and maybe that's because things were working for them. I mean, they were up 3-1. And then by mm-hmm. the time the Cavs had retaken control of the series, I do think, you know, we when we talked about Uh, his coaching in game seven, like we kind of threw him a little bit of a life raft where we were like, well, you know, like, yes, we shit on him. Yes, it was stupid to put a Festus back out there, but he had not very many bodies. James Michael McAdoo played a significant role in this series. So uh, (laughs) maybe he didn't have as many cards to play by the time he needed to adjust. So it's really interesting. But I do want to go back to talk about Kevin Love. I think what's crazy about this game isn't actually Kevin Love's stat line because it's not that remarkable. He shot 7 of 17, uh, 2 of 5 from Mm -hmm. 3, 17 of 13 overall, so as many points as shots he got. It feels, after watching the other games in the series, it's crazy that he got up 17 shots. No, no, absolutely. Because he did not get up 17 shots in other games in this series. (laughs) And, and in all fairness, he went one for four in the fourth quarter. But when he checked out, he, he checked out with 15 and 12. He had one hell of a, a first three quarters there. And he was contributing on defense. Like he was legitimately moving his feet and playing well. And I think when you look back at the four years, obviously 2015, he didn't play. This year, he, he got a concussion in game two. In 2017 and 2018, he was a net positive. Yes. Like, he played well. As much as this is a terrible matchup for him, and there were certain things where he wasn't as effective as you would want him to be, him getting the concussion in game two impacted how much he was able to contribute. Like, he, even though he, he's medically cleared, you could tell that there was a difference. And by the time game seven came around, he, he was moving a little quicker. He was feeling better. He was making a lot of hustle plays. But I, I ultimately think that when you look back on this series, a lot of people forget how good Kevin Love was throughout this playoff run and how good he was in game one. Throughout this rivalry. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th- I think that's And I, I think that it's really interesting because I think the way the narrative ended up being crafted, it was like, it was like they thought he was as bad on defense as Channing Fry was against this team. Sure. <laughs> and as much as I, you know, love Channing, like he, like it was very clear Channing in no construct could hang in almost any time he was ch- targeted defensively. Yes. That wasn't the case for Love. And I think it's worth noting in the biggest moment of his defensive career, <laughs> he was up to the task. So I think that. What, kind of looking back on this, it has given some interesting perspective. I also want to note that uh, Kevin Love was the first bucket of this game. He had a corner three. Cavaliers coming off a six-game win as Kevin Love knocks down the three. And it reminded me of my favorite degenerate bet I would make every single NBA Finals, Justin. <laughs> Kevin Love first bucket. Kevin Love to score first. It was always like plus 850 or something insane. I'm like, I don't know which team's going to score first, but I know the Cavs' first possession Kevin Love is shooting. Yeah, because if you get involved early, he's going to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, like three out of the four years, he took the first shot. This is the only time I ever won on it. But <laughs> the odds were so outrageous that, like, I made money in the aggregate. So <laughs> thank you, Kevin Love, uh, for always being my – actually, that was my second most reliable bet. My most reliable that I bet every single finals was LeBron to lead the series in rebounding. Yeah. Because he played like 46 minutes a game. Yeah. No one else was going to get more than him. Right. Which is the, the same way Steph Curry out rebounded Tristan Thompson 2017 because Tristan was playing 20 minutes a game and was kind of banged up and Steph was playing like 38. We'll dive back into our game one discussion after a quick break to talk about our sponsors. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, You'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, betonline.ag, still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. Or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. All are open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. And if you're into props and entertaining betting, 
you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. Visit their website today and join for a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE. Bet online, your online wagering experts. The other thing I forgot about this game at, at the start, I remember 2015 JR falling and busting up his shooting hand, and, and that obviously had an impact on him in the series. I forgot that he fell and got floor burn in this game and had skin hanging off his hand on his shooting hand. JR Smith dribbles it off his foot, dies on it. JR Smith diving for the loose ball. Looked like he took a little skin on that right hand, that shooting hand of his on the dive. Dude, it looked so painful. <laughs> it, it was so painful, and he comes out of the second half uh, with it wrapped up. And obviously, JR was a massive contributor for the Cavs once the series went back to Cleveland and he had some time to rest that up. But looking back on it, especially with how hopeless things felt and, and how poorly he played in, in 2015 in, in the finals, I, I remember just all the narratives that were coming where, oh, they claimed that Kyrie and Love would have made a difference or and that it was an outlier. But no, it's obviously there, there was... Um, something going on with him where he, his hand was totally messed Yeah, up. for sure. There are certain moments over the course of this series where you see something and you just are dropped right back into the brain you had at the time. Yeah. And for me, one of the times that happened in this game, there were two bad out-of-bounds calls in the first quarter against the Cavs. <laughs> and yeah. I remember turning to like my brother and like, well, if they're not going to fucking give us that, what are we even playing the series for? <laughs> I remember feeling so hard done, which is so funny given how the series ended up being affi- affected by officiating. And, and you know what? The the same feeling of dread that I got re-watching Game 7 where it's like, oh God, how is this going to go? I felt in this game that, you know what? The, the Cavs haven't played that great. They have a lead here in the third quarter. Maybe they're going to pull this thing off. Like It, it is so funny upon re-watching it because... Normally, I, I rewatch a game um, the day after it happens, too, so I get a, a better idea when I'm less invested in the results on, on kind of what's going on. Um, and obviously, this is the first time I really rewatched this series. Um, but man, it, it really kind of sucked me right back into that time, and, and it was so nice. And, and maybe that has to do with the fact that there's nothing else on. Um, but this has been one hell of a really well-played series, and Game 1 was far more entertaining than I remember. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, You know what I wanted to talk about that I completely forgot, and I'm actually glad that we went out of order? Mm -hmm. Did you remember that this was the first year it was a 2-2-1-1-1 in the finals? I did not remember that. That that was one of the, the things that was mentioned on the broadcast where I was like, man. Because this series doesn't happen. No, this this title doesn't happen if it's two three two. No, no, not not at all. No, because the, the Cavs absolutely needed to um, have the opportunity to kind of hold serve in Game Six and, and force a Game Seven. If, if it was two games in a row at Oracle, I don't think the Cavs win the series. No, um, it it really is. So if, if the Cavs would have lost games uh, one and two. Uh, just like they did in at Oracle, they would have won Game Three in at the Q. Would have won Game Four at the Q. No, lo- lost Game Four. I don't oh, think I'm sorry, that lost Game Four easy. at the Q. They would have had the Draymond suspension game in Game Five at the Q uh, to go down. To, if they would win that, probably to go up three two. Then they have to win two in a row at Oracle. No. And let's let's call it what it is. The Warriors likely would have been more okay punting Game Five. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I, I think a big part of what happened in this series was they, they came out guns blazing in game five and were really trying to close They it. tried so hard. And they had so many, like, multiple comebacks within that game. They had multiple comebacks within game six as well. And those efforts, I think if they even punted one of those games, they would have had a much better chance at winning this series. But um, that, that was kind of the dance that was going on with these two teams and and just the dislike that had been built up already to that point where they really wanted to go for the kill. Um, that that was something that was absolutely fascinating, and I, I completely forgot that this was uh, right around the time where that changeover happened. Yeah, uh, I just I just couldn't believe it. I just sat there, like, I paused my rewatch for a second while I just thought, holy shit, did the stars align mm-hmm. in, in, in this one? Yeah, 
No, absolutely. This must have been the second one. It right? would have been the second because they won yes, is the, second. the year prior in uh, Cleveland. Even when we even when we plan our series out, we're wrong all the time. Yeah, Welcome. you know. Um, you know what else I thought was really interesting in this game because it kind of held true the rest of the series is a difference in uh, coaching philosophies of how okay Kerr was in letting stars go off and how okay the Cavs were in letting role players go off mm-hmm. because those that really I think boils down to the philosophy of those two coaches right yeah no no I, I completely agree like in this game in this game the Cavs threw everything they could to keep Curry from clay from going off they kept their attempts down they they kept their points down they really didn't even have that much creation the Cavs focused and put all their resources from game one to game seven on not letting those two kill them mm-hmm. uh, and and saying if Draymond hits threes that's fine. If if Sean Livingston kills us on 15-footers, that's fine. In fact, they asked Tyron Lue, I believe after halftime of this game, maybe it's right before halftime, about the fact that Steph hadn't been playing well, but they were still losing. He's like, hey, you know, we got to take those. And he never really wavered off of that. And eventually, and really, that's, that's kind of the difference between Kerr and Lue, mm-hmm. is Lue bets on his stars and Kerr bets on his belief in the system. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in this instance, I really think that it's just proof that Lou is right. Is like eventually Sean Livingston's going to stop making this shit and eventually Harrison Barnes is going to realize he's Harrison Barnes and shit his pants on the national stage. Mm-hmm. But Kyrie and LeBron are going to figure shit out. Right. And it's not like it was I'm just going to trust them to figure it out. There were obviously adjustments there. There was adjustments to pace. There was adjustments to the way that they created isolations because this was a really, really stagnant game. And one thing that was fascinating to me in this one was with it being so stagnant, Kyrie was getting to the free throw line a fair bit, which wasn't all free throw attempts in this game, which I don't think he's had 12 free throw attempts in his career. Yeah. And you compare that to game five where he scored 41 points. He had two. Um, and this, this was a game though, where you could tell both Kyrie and LeBron were struggling with the help defense. There were many, many times where if the help defender didn't kind of generate a steal or a turnover, they at least got them to bobble the ball and throw them off of their rhythm as, as the uh, series progressed. They did a better job creating isolations a little further away from the basket, so it was tougher to bring that help defense. They were anticipating that earlier. Uh, The ways that they kind of generated those mismatches, they were a little further away from the basket, as I said. And and those were the type of adjustments that they made. It wasn't a massive thing to scheme. It was anticipating what the Warriors were doing and and making the appropriate adjustments so that uh, their defense was a little less effective. Yeah, just the the little things like they didn't know how to switch Iggy off of LeBron Mm -hmm. in this game. There were so many times where a guy would come and screen for LeBron and they would do it right at the top of the three-point arc and Iggy would just not move. He just wouldn't give up ground and he would wait and say, LeBron, if you want to dribble into three dudes in the paint, be my guest, but... I'm not I'm not going to give this up and by and there were so many possessions that ended up just getting squandered with JR desperately just pushing Iggy Iggy not moving yeah and uh the defense not having to adjust the Cavs were so bad early in the series at destabilizing that Warriors defense and it really showed in their offensive output in this game I mean they were pretty hideous they were 40 uh, 38% from the field and 33% from 3 they only got 21 threes up mm-hmm. which is uh, not enough, only hit seven. And a lot of those were late in the game or LeBron pulling off the dribble once the game was already decided. Yeah, and, and this was a game where there wasn't really a whole lot of help outside of kind of the, the big three in this game. And often people will kind of have bad faith arguments where they say, oh, well, when LeBron loses, he's not getting enough help or whatever the case may be. A lot of the times it kind of is on LeBron because he was not very assertive in this game. He didn't understand how to attack them yet. Correct. And so many of the role players are designed and brought in specifically for how well they play off of and engage LeBron. And with him not really generating those opportunities and not getting the defense to collapse, they weren't able to capitalize. Certainly didn't help, as we talked about before, with J.R. Smith 
uh, having a messed up hand, he played over 15 minutes uh, without attempting a shot. Like that, that should never be the case with JR. And that is a clear indicator that something was clearly, clearly bothering him. And that was the hand. The other and th- things were just gunked up. He didn't really have a lot of sh- chances to, to get good looks off. Right, right. And, and maybe he would have attempted one or two kind of hero ball shots that JR uh, is so well known for. Um, but it was just ugly, ugly, slow offense. And I think that it was a really at the, I mean, looking back on it now, it makes tons of sense that the Cavs would decide to push the pace. Um, And I I remember even in the series coverage, even after they won game three, um, people were mocking the fact that Ty Lue said, Hey, we got to play faster. We we can't let their defense get set up um, because that is the way the Warriors play. Nobody, play better running gun basketball than the Warriors up to that point. But it really, really did make a difference when it came to destabilizing uh, the defense. Another thing I forgot about this game, Carter, and a moment that took me right back to the rage I felt in this moment, Virgil flopping, looking at him flopping for another team. When Love had an and one that could have cut the lead to five late in the second, and it was waved off because of a flop. Love gets inside, they wave it off, an offensive foul. Jeff Van Gundy was so incredulous, and it just carried throughout the entire series how much he hated Anderson Verzhal. That's, that's a flop, Mike. No, he sold that. No, he extended his right oh, arm. Mike, you get it from an official standpoint. I think this is why coaches and players have so many conflicts with officials. And being on the other side of him, and thank God he gave it back to the Cavs and, and anything he contributed to the Warriors, he made sure to give back to the Cavs, working as a double agent. <laughs> Um, but the times that he did help them out with his BS drove me insane. Yeah, there's Zhao, uh, you know, the, the, any good double agent, Justin, uh, <laughs> make sure just at the people he's gaming just enough uh, to believe in him. Yeah, you, you leak plans, but not the most valuable. Plans, yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. You know what you're willing to take L's on uh, with your double agents. Bless and, his heart. Uh, I think Verzhao did, did great work uh, on behalf of us. You know what else uh, was funny uh, about this uh, series? Uh, another little memory about from this game that mm-hmm. quickly uh, got abandoned in this series. Do you remember the fucking unstoppable uh, nail play where they would have LeBron on one wing and then Delhi would come up and set a pin down screen or a screen up at the elbow for RJ mm-hmm. and RJ would either get a lob or an open uh, or slip for an open three every single time. And the yeah. Cavs destroyed the Raptors with this play. I mean, literally ran them off the floor with this play. They ran it like 10 times a game. Yes. And the Warriors just said, oh, we're, we're just going to switch it. And you know what? <laughs> they how, never how ran much, that play again. <laughs> I have this in my notes. How much are we blaming the Toronto Raptors for how the Cavs started the series? I, I'm going to actually go with blaming both the Raptors this year and the Boston Celtics in 2017 of not getting the Cavs tuned up. They made it so easy to just exploit mismatches. Uh, the Cavs didn't really have to deal with any defensive pressure. It, it was like a hot knife through butter. And then then you go to the Warriors, and, and you're not tuned up at all. Everyone says LeBron had an easy path. I think he'd rather have a little bit more competition. What, what do you say to that, Kirk? I think it's ridiculous. But I do think <laughs> that people kind of forget that the Warriors were really – early on we're gonna fucking switch everything that doesn't involve the best players and like it just feels so obvious in hindsight that like it's a dull it's a it's an off-ball set featuring matthew del bedova and richard jefferson just switch it it doesn't matter (laughs) like if they're gonna ice if those two are gonna ice you to death you have to be okay with that but uh it really wasn't that self-evident to nba defenses yet that you could just switch that shit and it didn't matter and that the points for a possession, the math game just ended up playing in your favor if you just if you did that enough. Like every now and again, you get burned, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, and you can get away with those switches. And the Cavs just had no clue how to handle the switches. I mean, I remember, I think it was after game four, I wrote a thing for Fear the Sword about just like literally just like, hey, the Warriors are switching. It's gunking up the Cavs offense. Here's some stuff they can do. And it was just like basic stuff they they hadn't figured out how to do yet. Like they weren't slipping screens against them yet. They weren't relocating off ball. Like there would just be so much standstill where LeBron would drive into the paint. Like you you have to drift into his passing lane and out of where the defender thought you were. The Cavs hadn't figured this out yet. Like attacking, you know, like when um, in the finals last year and 
they uh, the Raptors Warriors finals, they would they threw in some zone and just gunk stuff up because teams just forgot how to attack it. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what happened with the switching. No one was doing this yet. And no, I, I completely agree. And it's so funny to look back at it being four years from now or four years ago. And the NBA has changed so much. And I'd I'd be really fascinated to see how the coaching philosophies on both sides would have changed um, given what we know now and given where the league has gone. Like it's been taken to such an extreme in, in so many different ways. Um, but just how the adjustments would happen with rotation. Like, would the Cavs try a little bit of LeBron at center at times, even with how effective Tristan Thompson was? But he did have games in this series, including this one, where he really wasn't as effective. I think over the course of the series, I would say that he was probably their third most important player, just with how Kevin Love got limited. And obviously missing a game has an impact in that as well. But there were flat out games where he wasn't playing well. And and Ty was never afraid to bench anybody, even in a playoff game. He had done it before with Kyrie and Love. And he would go with whatever options were giving him the best look in that game. And I just want, I wonder how much more creative he would have got in this series um, with the way that the game is played now. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I really think it's Kerr that, uh, and, and we'll that, talk that's, about that's later obviously the, the big one. Yeah. yeah, I just think it's Kerr. I just think he would just play his best players more. Would he though? Would he? I, I, I think, think he, he would play. Uh, well, maybe he wouldn't, but he should. I, 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 yeah, I, I think he's still fairly invested in the uh, the basketball socialism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> much to uh, our light years friend Chagrin's. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, I just I think even Marcus Thompson calls it that. So I, I think we're allowed. Yeah, to. I mean, he literally uh, played three centers almost every game of the series. Uh, that yeah. he had Bogut, Azili, and Varejao. Like all three of those guys were in his rotation for better or worse. And it's like, ooh, just super strange choices. Like, I just feel like there's just these coaches that look at the look at their players and, and go, no, we're, we we play this way. Like, this is our rotation and we're going to stick to it. And like, you know, Steph, very rarely top 40 minutes in this series. Um, and I just, I just still don't understand it. Um, I know mm-hmm. that they were wearing down, but you just got to, you got to die with your, your best players. He played 35 in this series. He played 35, 24, 30, 39, 40, 35, 39. He only topped 40 once in the series. Wow. And, of course, the 24 was when they absolutely beat the pants off the Cavs in game two. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the Cavs sure fell apart, especially after the uh, Kevin Love concussion. Man, maybe it's part of the long con. Like, maybe I'm grateful that this game was lost because it was the typical quintessential strength in numbers game where it was absolutely the bench that won this game. Um, a lot of it came in that 15-0 run where LeBron was sitting on the bench for the majority of that. By the way, Justin, when LeBron comes off the bench and Van Gundy calls this out, he he mentions that they put LeBron on Livingston to cool him off. Livingston, his fourth field goal, he's got eight points. Livingston on the follow, a fake and a banker. Sean fucking Livingston. <laughs> no, honestly, I, I think that was a mistake by Ty Lue because it doesn't matter if it's LeBron. It doesn't matter if it's Kawhi Leonard. Whoever you want to pick from history, there was nothing more unstoppable than a Sean Livingston mid-range jumper. I, I, I swear to God, if they just ran that play every single possession for all seven games, uh, it wouldn't go seven games. It would go four. That guy terrified me. I, yeah. The, and just tough oh, for the Cavs because they had small guards – um, that they really couldn't switch off of him either, like because it was always Clay, and, and that does, you know you don't want to go put Kyrie on Clay if you can avoid it. I, they they did at times. Uh, mm-hmm. Delhi and Delhi was working his ass off, but Delhi's shorter than Kyrie. It was just it was about as as good of a bench mismatch. And like and I mentioned this, to, I think Thompson later in the series, but I just think that when those guys would get on the floor. And Steph and Barbosa would would uh, Steph and Clay would sit, and Barbosa and Livingston would get on the floor. I think the Cavs just thought they could breathe. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, and um, that's when you have to be really attentive because LeBron's going to try his best to to win those minutes that he's out there, and he's really going to play pretty much the entire series. He's not going to get a lot of breathers, 
And if you allow basically a 15-0 run in the two minutes he sits uh, or the minute and a half he sits, that cannot happen. And, and it's so funny looking back at it, at the bad faith arguments that were made about, well, this is why the Cavs are better with Delhi than Kyrie. Um, you look at how bad Delhi was in the series. I had forgotten. That, that was one of the surprising takeaways because with him wearing the, the uh, Tommy Bahama shirt uh, at the parade and in Vegas <laughs> and the little Kev shirt, you still have these warm feelings for Delhi. I will always still have warm feelings for Delhi. The 2015 run. You don't have warm feelings for Delhi. I, I do. I still I still enjoy Delhi. Don't you dare put that but, on me. My God, was he bad in the series. And there was absolutely no difference when he was out there versus versus Kyrie defensively. I will say Kyrie did invest a little more effort into the defensive end as this series went along. Oh, he um, was tough in this game, man. It, it was bad. It there's was a play bad. where there's a play where Barnes, uh, as the game is slipping away from them, Barnes doesn't like he cuts in front of him. It's not even like he snuck behind him for a cut. He cut right down the middle of the floor and yammed it. Uh, and it really put started move, moving the game out of reach. It was just Kyrie not paying attention. Like, yeah, and it's a wake up call where you're if you're playing against Steph or Clay or Barbosa or Livingston or even when you're put on Harrison Barnes, you have to be a little more attentive. This isn't Kyle Lowry. He's not going to quit in the middle of a series. <laughs> I think Don't, it's important. We weren't that, we weren't far removed from that, Carter, at this time. Maybe, maybe yeah. again, I'm going to keep circling back to blaming the Toronto Raptors. I think it's important that we get some Raptors slander in to keep our uh, our listeners' morale high. I do think, like, watching this game, knowing that they're going to win, it's just such an interesting feeling because, like, you're just dissecting, like, what was different? And, yeah, part of it was Bogut. Part of it was just them being healthy. The Warriors were just so bedraggled by the end of the series. And what a word. Good for I you. Know. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's a $10 word. But yeah, they just felt so worn down. And in this game, they're still sharp. Like Steph wasn't even good, but like everyone seemed to have a certain energy and vibe that like, oh, we're better than you and we're going to win. No, absolutely. And and you know what? It There is a likable aspect to that. I, I enjoyed it more later in the series, even uh, like, let's say a game like game four where the Warriors won fairly comfortably. I enjoyed watching them play um, removed from it. I, I mean, it certainly helps knowing that the Cavs won this series, but there was a joy with how this team played and the depth. And I, I know it causes some people to roll their eyes, but especially in comparison to the KD team where there was just so much infighting with that team. And it's, you know what, even though we don't like each other, even though uh, we aren't playing as free basketball and it's not really moving and we do isolation, we just have so much talent and the margin uh, of error is so large that we can just dick around and win championships. And, and this team, uh, the level that they played at, um, it, it really, really is kind of fun to watch and go back and look at it. Um, the the other thing, uh, I can I can understand why the Cavs, after being down three one, after winning Game Five, looked back at this series and looked back at Game One and said, you know what? We really could have had this one. Like I can understand looking at this game. I, I think there it was certainly possible for them to win this game if they played with the mindset, the mentality, the pace that they had later in the series. And obviously that's part of the feeling out process. But I can see why they would look back at this and say, you know what? We have a chance. We could win in Oracle. Uh, we we can go in there. We can just take care of business in game six and game seven. Trust LeBron. And we, we can come away as victors. So I, I, I looking back at the series, I understand why they would have some confidence. I don't think it was purely irrational. No, I don't think so either. And they had LeBron. Like they, that, they knew. that certainly helps, you know? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they knew that they could figure it. If they just got it to that game seven, they could figure it out. Before we move back big picture, though, I do think we should run through any remaining stray observations we have from this game before we uh before we put a ball on this episode all right do you have any anything in mind or would you like me to start so i I got one i know you have this one as well but in the third quarter jeff ben gunny yells out um after a steph miss so is he not healthy right now i I can't keep track because he's struggling he's not healthy now right because he was healthy when he was rolling but when every time he struggles to shoot He's unhealthy. Is that right? Is this sarcasm? No, I, I want to get the excuses ready. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. Looking back on it, 
Um, it is clear that that stuff is somewhat limited. But you know what else? It's clear, Justin. What? A lot of people were limited. Like this, this series is the walking wounded. Yeah, the, the sheer number of injuries. This series was a war of attrition. And I, I think people, when you look at the rivalry in the four years, obviously you, you mentioned the people that are physically out of the games. Um, but if you go to Tristan Thompson being injured in 2017, J.R. Smith um, hurting his hand uh, both in 2016 and 2015, Mon Shumpert pulling his groin in 2015, uh, LeBron's back in 2015, um, uh, Iggy's back in this series w- was absolutely huge. Bogut going down, like there's so much. And really, when you get to the finals, like even getting to the finals, it's a war of attrition. And I, I think not enough attention and credit is given to that. But yeah, absolutely, both teams were really. Big. It is great to hear Van Gundy shit on the narrative. It, it is fun. It, I mean, and here's why: yeah. because it it's just like I think Van Gundy more than anyone, like he's been around this league for so long he just knows that people are so beat up once they get to the finals and like right. he coached in the finals right like, yeah he coached in the finals and and he understood that this is just not something that teams make excuses for and like you just have to figure it out like that that's really what the finals are is figure it out win the war of attrition and uh it didn't happen for them and i think it was funny that even in game one because i feel like i remember it mattering more and more later into the series um, but you kind of forget that this is a conversation that happened all the way through the Western Conference Finals too. Yeah. You're either good enough to win or you're not, and ultimately, like that's just the way it has to be. It was it was just funny to hear him him talk about it and shit on the narrative. It does make me think, though, Justin, mm-hmm. LeBron should have busted out that cast in 2018 after Game One. <laughs> what are you doing, bro? Because then we could be speculating for three games. I, I want to call back to... The value is the speculation, not the injury. So we've been doing this podcast for a long time. I want to call back to our conversation after that. The real move would have been hiring a photographer to find him at the beach with a cast on. And then, <laughs> you know, a- after the series and, oh, what this? Yeah, I kind of broke it after game one. You know, just... just sprinkle some seats there for for people to kind of connect the dots and yeah he was too heavy-handed yeah that's okay it's okay <laughs> Brian. you live and you learn uh another uh stray uh observation that i completely forgot about delhi dick punches iggy yeah yeah he does and Edgar dallas foul has something to say to della vadova thompson pulls della vadova away shepherd gets in the middle of it Iguodala took exception to something right away. Well, he tells his team right away he was hit below the belt. In a, in a series so defined by a dick punch, the fact that we forgot that there was another high-profile one that nearly led to a fight. Yeah, and, uh, and it's so funny that great. it wasn't like really brought up on the broadcast. Like they didn't call enough attention to that. Like they were they saying, were like kind of pro Delhi yeah, in the whole, which was the exchange. weirdest thing. Like, <laughs> I, if I were a Warriors fan, I would have been steamed. <laughs> Because they hated Delhi too. Because how could you not after 2015? No, absolutely. Um, every fan base that that played the Cavs at that time hated Delhi. But no, it was funny because they were saying, "Well, if anyone should receive a technical, it's Iggy for how he reacted to this." I'm like, uh, you know, the way that Delhi plays, I, ah, I kind of did him in the dick. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe it would have helped the Cavs if he was suspended. But <laughs> there, there's the deli shade that you uh, falsely accused me of before. I, I wanted to, there you go. I wanted to give you a little bit more of a leg to stand on there. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, do you have any more uh, stray observations, or can we move back to the big picture? I, I'm fine moving back to the big picture. I mean, mostly what happened in this game was it was competitive throughout. Kevin Love was very, very good, and then when you look at the fourth quarter. Um, not only did the Cavs blow it and not be able to regain momentum, um, all Kyrie, LeBron, and Love all went cold. Uh, Kyrie and LeBron they went cold, and yeah, Ky- Kyrie and LeBron, both, and Barbosa. yeah, they they both went two of five. Love went one of four. Um, they it, it just it was ugly, and, and they weren't getting con- contributions from anybody else. Um, it it was just. They they fell apart and they realized that they lost. It their feels like they lost the quarter by a lot more than nine. Ugh. Let's just say that much. Absolutely. Before we wrap up with this episode and you know move our way into game two of this series, I think now is actually the best time because you know game six, five, six, seven, they're about the games and about those moments in time. But I think now is actually a really good time to talk about why do you think this series still matters so much, uh, and to people who aren't just Cavs and Warriors fans? That's a great question. I I think there's a nostalgia aspect to it because I 
as much as people will kind of meme, oh, Kevin Durant ruined the NBA, I do think there was a shift in how invested everybody was after this series. Like, it, it just was so hard to buy into anything when it felt like the end result was so inevitable. Obviously, you had this movement building in Golden State where um, everything turned into Steph this year. Like, this was the season of Steph, and it should be. It's one of the all-time great offensive seasons. But you had his warm-ups being broadcasted. You had Under Armour surging where it was they, they had fully invested in Steph Curry. Uh, they were ready to overtake Nike. Uh, and then you had LeBron as kind of the Nike signature athlete. And there, there was just so mo- much momentum riding on this series. And it was so big for LeBron's legacy. It was big for Steph's. I mean, Steph had the, the comment after the year prior where it was kind of mocking the fact that the Cavs were hurt. I'm, I'm sorry that we had to play so many teams without injuries. I'm sorry that we were so healthy. I will try to rectify that next. I, I just think there were so many narratives that people could feel polarized by one way or another on both sides. That, it, that it's something that connected. It's something that, that really kind of resonated with a lot of fans outside of the rivalry. I think that this was the last time basketball mattered. I agree. And felt like it mattered. I think that there were so many interesting things that happened this season. Uh, there was so much greatness. And, you know, it's funny. I always go back to a, a Zach Lowe uh, a column uh, note that when he was talking about the KD Warriors, and because, you know, when, whenever you'd criticize the KD Warriors, people say, oh, I, people like to watch greatness. Greatness is like, like, look at look at the 90s. Look at the 80s. Those were all basically like fait accompli, like series like that. We knew who was going to one or two teams was going to win the title. And Lowe always said people like to see greatness challenged. Mm-hmm. And what was so cool about this particular confluence of matchups, this 73-win Warriors team, this version of LeBron, Kyrie, Love, is we had two teams that were great in very different ways challenging each other to the absolute max that they could be challenged. I remember, without a hint of irony, and I don't regret it, writing before the 2017 finals, that depending on how that series went, this could be the greatest NBA rivalry of all time. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the hate, the disdain was so strong. The fan bases hated each other. Uh, LeBron was protecting his turf as the greatest. He had disdain for the idea, for the glorification of Steph. Yeah, and Steph was um, annoyed and, and mad that LeBron wasn't giving him some credit because he... And you know what's really interesting that really, I think, took this from... 2015 was fun and interesting, and yeah, it sucked that the guys got hurt. The Warriors pivoting to being heels mm-hmm. this season was so important arrogant season as frustrating as it was um draymond shitting on uh tristan thompson and the Cavs uh in after they won the title uh steph saying his apologies spiel they they literally became hated by by so many people because they were so they won so explosively they felt so unbeatable and draymond was the perfect villain to cap that off and it just felt like after this series Everything got tamped down when KD came. It just kind of like diluted the process, this mm-hmm. this beautiful chemical solution. And everything was the perfect confluence here. And I'll always be sad that we didn't get one more run it back moment because yeah. I really think we would have. You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, if KD had stayed, well, they would have made it. I don't think that's true. I think this Warriors team, I think one of the funniest things that Cavs fans do with this series is denigrate the Warriors and call them frauds, 73 wins, and they lied, la-di-da-di-da. And I get the impulse, but like part of what makes this title so special to me and why I still think it matters is I think the Cavs beat maybe a top three team that was ever compiled, Mm -hmm. top five maybe, somewhere, whatever it is, in terms of their output and success as a team. We know 2017 were more talented. This team won 73 games and didn't have to work that hard to do it. No, absolutely. In in my opinion, like, I think they're the greatest regular season team of all time. I think if both teams are healthy for both years, I think they swap titles. I think that's probably fair. But from a narrative standpoint, like it's just so fascinating to me that it did unravel the way that it did. And I I think it, it built up what made this rivalry special. Um, I wish we got more of it. Like I I really wish we had a couple more times, uh, a few more cracks at one, because I, I think, um, we, we would have had another chance at a title potentially 
because uh, I, I do believe that 2017 was the best Cavs team uh, that they put together. Um, but really looking back at it, it was a time where if you came up short of winning the championship, it's what adjustments do you need to make? Um, we need to get guys playing better. We need this guy to do that. Now, if you come up short, it's you have to go get someone. You have to go get uh, a superstar. Does this guy have enough uh, help? And it really kind of, it seems like this is a dividing point where after that, after the KD decision, which is really a decision that was enabled in some ways by LeBron going to Miami. Like he kind of, it's ironic that he forged a path uh, for one of his, the greatest roadblocks that he encountered in, in his career, um, which is KD joining the Warriors. Um, but it, it's really fascinating that after this point, I, I think the the conversation turned to, this guy needs to leave so he can get more help uh, or this team needs to get another star. It became less about that internal growth and the continuity that really gets fan bases to buy into. It became an arms race. Yeah, absolutely. And basketball still is talked about like an arms race. It's always about adding that extra guy. Uh, I don't know if that fundamentally changed, but it feels like it did. I feel like you're right. And I think that, and that might you be know, me applying biases to this, but yeah, yeah maybe, maybe, but ultimately I do think that it just changed the way a lot of fans engage with the NBA. And, uh, we are, I feel like we're in a 3.5 year, four year hangover, mm-hmm. uh, where we're just waiting for we're I think collectively as NBA fans, and this is not a Cavs take, this is not a Warriors take. I think as NBA fans, we are collectively waiting to care as much as, as we all did. I remember I was still in Chicago at the time when the series was happening. And one of my coworkers, lifelong Bulls fan, uh, he said he, we were talking about the series and he's just a big hoops head. Uh, shout out Ernest Tolden. Still love you, bud. He said, you know, I think the Heat Spurs series, the first one that went to seven was better basketball. But I've never, I don't remember a finals feeling so important. Mm-hmm. And I just think we're all waiting to care as much as we did. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think there was an opportunity maybe this season um, it, if it does end up happening. I, I think the momentum's kind of been lost. But I think people needed to almost wait to see it in the playoffs where let's see how these teams match up because everyone kind of returned to the pack a little bit this year and it became once again a game about matchups, uh, how the seeding broke out. I think we needed um, to, to see it before we start buying in. You know what we need more than anything though, Justin? What? We need new stories. We, well, exactly. We well, that's what that's what I'm saying. I, I think Failures and successes. I, we, we need needed to get those storylines we needed to get um the the upsets or or these interesting matchups we needed to see it in front of us before we'd be able to invest in those narratives again and who knows maybe this break does give us a detox where um you you're so removed from it and, and you have basically what what might be a summer's worth of time away from basketball without free agency it might even be longer so who knows maybe, maybe this does kind of jumpstart things and, and get it back to a more um, entertaining realm. But I, I do think that, that you're right. I, I think that's a, a big part of why this series still has a lot of nostalgia, even for people outside of the rivalry. Yeah, I just think that it's so hard to come down off of something this good. And no one saw this, this rivalry coming. And uh, I think it's going to be a long time till we get something like this again, because it was truly special. And that's why we're doing this series. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so funny because this conversation almost feels like a conclusion to the series. But I, I think it actually serves as an introduction to just what made this so special. Because as we progress through the episodes that are to come, um, a lot of it does kind of shift to that big picture and what the series meant to each of our guests and and those connection points. So I, I do think that it, this is a good tone setter for what is to come in this series. I, I hope everybody likes it. I, I hope that you guys enjoy this as much as we have, because um, this has really been a special project. Um, so I, I think this is a great place to wrap it up and a great introduction to this series. Uh, do you have anything you want to add before I take this thing home, Carter? Uh, please listen and share. Uh, this is something we worked really hard on. I uh, recorded seven day, seven pods in like 13 days uh, <laughs> and watched seven games and, uh, in that same uh, time frame and took extensive notes and 
booked guests and uh, we really are proud of what this uh, turned into and we hope that you guys uh, enjoyed as much as we have uh, putting it together. Wow, way to shame and pressure our guests and <laughs> our, our listeners yeah. in, into uh, to promoting this. I, I like well, it. We started, we, well, we started the pod saying that they're not going to be interested in us. So. You know what? We're, we're really good at this thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think so, man. This is exactly the kind of shit Blue Wire believes in us. For. Absolutely. We're doing it right. I want to give a big thanks to all of our listeners and again, a massive thanks to all the guests that contributed to this project. I really hope you guys like it. As Carter said, word of mouth goes so far in, in helping us promote this. If you, you like what we're doing, uh, if you've been a fan of the Chase Down podcast for a while, uh, let let people know. Tell friends and family. Get to see. Get them to check it out. We really, really do appreciate it. If you want to support us directly, you can also do so by leaving a rating, leave a review, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, and help cook those books. And if you want to be part of our Cavs exclusive Discord for the Chase Down Podcast, you can send a screenshot of that review to chasedownpod at gmail.com. Once again, big thank you to all of our guests, all of our listeners, to Carter. And until next time, go Cavs.